Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far, read to you by Pratam Data. A Child's History of England, by Charles Dickens, read to you by Pratam Data. Chapter 14, Part 2. England under King John, called Lackland. A quick recap then. It's 1199, and Richard I, or Richard the Lionheart, is dead, and John's taken over. Now John, of course, Richard, John, Geoffrey, are all children of Henry II and Eleanor, the Duchess of Aquitaine. Even the John was the youngest of Henry II and Eleanor's children, and Henry quite likes him. Nobody really wanted him to succeed in the English throne. They rather thought that the 12-year-old boy, Arthur, would become the next king of England. So what happened was, of course, England at that point of time was having a massive rebellion amongst its own ranks, civil war of sorts, with the French kings trying to assert their dominions over England, while the English kings were asserting their dominions over France. So King Philip II supported Arthur, and King John was left all by himself. And that didn't go very well when chance presented itself. In the Battle of Mirabu, John did get a chance to capture Arthur, present him in Falais and then in Rouen, and finally had him killed. Oh, Geoffrey's son Arthur, the little boy, was now dead, and John could simply resume quelling revolts and battling his way through his entire monarchy. But King John being King John, now started a new quarrel with the Pope, Pope Innocent III, and the Pope, not liking him much, ended up excommunicating him. So, King John had nothing left in his favour. His forces were not being able to quell the rebellion. Philip in France was marching rapidly westward to constantly combat him in just about every possible arena. And King John decided, why not go and seek for help from the Turks? When the Turks heard that he was willing to renounce his own religion just to get help from the Turks and defeat King Philip II, they basically thought, I don't think this is a person who knows how to maintain his own kingdom. No good trying to ally ourselves with him, because that's just going to open up a new can of worms. And that is where we stand. Back to the book then. Money being in his position, the next best thing to men, King John spared no means of getting it. He sat on foot on another pressing and torturing of the unhappy Jews, which was quite in his way, and invented a new punishment for one wealthy Jew of Bristol. 
until such time as that Jew should produce a certain large sum of money, the king sentenced him to be imprisoned and, every day, to have one tooth violently wrenched out of his head, beginning with a double tooth. For seven days, the oppressed man wore the daily pain and lost the daily tooth, but on the eighth, he paid the money. With the treasure raised in such ways, the king made an expedition into Ireland where some English nobles had revolted. It was one of the very few places from which he did not run away because no resistance was shown. He made another expedition into Wales whence he did run away in the end, but not before he had got from the Welsh people as hostages 27 young men of the best families, every one of whom he caused to be slain in the following year. To interdict an excommunication, the Pope now added his last sentence. Deposition. He proclaimed John the Long King, absolved all his subjects from their allegiance and sent Stephen Langton and others to the King of France to tell him that, if he would avoid England, he should be forgiven all his sins, at least should be forgiven them by the Pope if that would too. As there was nothing that King Philip desired more than to invade England, he collected a great army at Rouen and a fleet of 1,700 ships to bring them over. But the English people, however bitterly they hated their king, were not a people to suffer invasion quietly. They flocked to Dover, where the English standard was, in such great numbers to enroll themselves as defenders of their native land that there were not provisions for them, and the king could only select and retain 60,000. But at this crisis, the Pope, who had his own reasons for objecting to either King John or King Philip being too powerful, interfered. He entrusted a legate, whose name was Pandolf, with the easy task of frightening King John. He sent him to the English camp, from France to terrify him with exaggerations of King Philip's power and his own weakness in the discontent of English barons and people. Pandolf discharged his commission so well that King John, in a wretched panic, consented to acknowledge Stephen Langton to resign his kingdom to God, St. Peter and St. Paul, which meant the Pope, and to hold it ever afterwards by the Pope's leave on payment of an annual sum of money. To this shameful contract he publicly bound himself in the church of the Knights Templars at Dover, where he laid at the legate's feet a part of the tribute which the legate haughtily trampled upon. But they do say that this was merely a genteel flourish and that he was afterwards seen to pick it up and pocket it. There was an unfortunate prophet, the name of Peter, who had greatly increased King John's terrors by predicting that he would be unknighted, 
which the king supposed to signify that he would die before the feast of the ascension should be passed. That was the day after the humiliation. When the next morning came and the king, who had been trembling all night, found himself alive and safe, he ordered the prophet and his son to be dragged through the streets of the tails of horses and then hanged for having frightened him. As King John had now submitted, the Pope, to King Philip's great astonishment, took him under his protection and informed King Philip that he found he could not give him leave to invade England. The angry Philip resolved to do it without his leave, but he gained nothing and lost much, for the English, commanded by the Earl of Salisbury, went over in 500 ships to the French coast before the French fleet had sailed away from it and utterly defeated the whole. The Pope then took off his three sentences, one after another, and empowered Stephen Langton publicly to receive King John into the favour of the church again and to ask him to dinner. The king, who hated Langton with all his might and main, and with reason too, for he was a great and good man, with whom such a king could have no sympathy, pretended to cry and to be very grateful. There was a little difficulty about settling how much the king should pay as a recompense to the clergy for the losses he had caused them. but. The end of it was the superior clergy got a good deal and the inferior clergy got little or nothing, which has also happened since King John's time, I believe. When all these matters were arranged, the king in his triumph became more fierce and false and insolent to all around him than he had ever been. An alliance of sovereigns against King Philip gave him an opportunity of landing an army in France, with which he even took a town. But, on the French king's gaining a great victory, he ran away of course and made a truce for five years. And now the time approached when he was to be still further humbled and made to feel, if he could feel anything, that what a wretched creature he was. Of all men in the world, Stephen Langton seemed raised up by heaven to oppose and subdue him. When he ruthlessly burnt and destroyed the property of his own subjects, because their lords, the barons, would not serve him broad, Stephen Langton fearlessly reproved and threatened him. When he swore to restore the laws of King Edward, or the laws of King Henry I, Stephen Langton knew his falsehoods and pursued him through all his evasions. When the barons met at the Abbey of St Edmundsbury to consider their wrongs and the king's oppressions, Stephen Langton roused them by his fervid words to demand a solemn charter of rights and liberties from their perjured master, and to swear, one by one, on the high altar that they would have it or would wage war against him to death. 
When the king hid himself in London from the barons, and was at last obliged to receive them, they told him roundly they would not believe him unless Stephen Langton became a surety that he would keep his word. When he took the cross to invest himself with some interest, and belonged to something that was received with favour, Stephen Langton was still immovable. When he appealed to the Pope, and the Pope wrote to Stephen Langton in behalf of his new favourite, Stephen Langton was deaf, even to the Pope himself, and saw before him nothing but the welfare of England and the crimes of the English king. At Easter time, the barons assembled at Stamford in Lincolnshire, in proud array, and marching near to Oxford where the king was, delivered into the hands of Stephen Langton and two others a list of grievances. And these, they said, he must redress, or we will do it for ourselves. When Stephen Langton told the king as much, and read the list to him, he went half mad with rage. But that did him no more good than his afterwards trying to pacify the barons with lies. They called themselves and their followers the Army of God and the Holy Church. Marching through the country, with the people thronging to them everywhere, at Northampton, where they failed in an attack upon the castle, they at last triumphantly set up their banner in London itself, whither the whole land, tired of the tyrant, seemed to flock to join them. Seven knights alone, of all the knights in England, remained with the king, who reduced in this trade at last sent the Earl of Pembroke to the barons to say that he approved of everything and would meet them to sign their charter when they would. Then, said the barons, let the day be the 15th of June and the place Runnymede. On Monday, the 15th of June, 1214, the king came from Windsor Castle, and the barons came from the town of Staines, where they met on Runnymede, which is still a pleasant meadow by the Thames, where rushes grow in the clear water of the winding river, and its banks are green with grass and trees. On the side of the barons came the general of their army, Robert Fitzwalter, and a great concourse of the nobility of England. Where the king came in all, some four and twenty persons of any note, most of whom despised him and were merely his advisers in form. On that great day, and in that great company, the king signed Magna Carta, the great charter of England by which he pledged himself to maintain the church and its rights, to relieve the barons of oppressive obligations as vassals of the crown, of which the barons in their turn pledged themselves to relieve their vassals, the people, to respect the liberties of London and all the cities and boroughs, to protect foreign merchants who came to England, to imprison no man without a fair trial, and to sell, delay, or deny justice 
to none. As the barons knew his falsehood well, they further required as their securities that he should send out of his kingdom all his foreign troops, that for two months they should hold possession of the city of London and Stephen Langton of the Tower, and that five and twenty of their body, chosen by themselves, should be a lawful committee to watch the keeping of the charter and to make war upon him if he broke it. All this he was obliged to yield. He signed the charter with a smile, and if he could have looked agreeable, would have done so as he departed from the splendid assembly. When he got home to Windsor Castle, he was quite a madman in his helpless fury, and he broke the charter immediately afterwards. He sent abroad for foreign soldiers and sent to the Pope for help and plotted to take London by surprise while the barons should be holding a great tournament at Stamford which they had agreed to hold there as a celebration of the Charter. The barons, however, found him out and put it off. Then, when the barons desired to see him and tax him with his treachery, he made numbers of appointments with them and kept none, and shifted from place to place and was constantly sneaking and skulking apart. At last he appeared at Tabor to join his foreign soldiers of whom numbers came to his pay, and with them he besieged and took Rochester Castle, which was occupied by knights and soldiers of the barons. He would have hanged them every one. But the leader of the foreign soldiers, fearful of what the English people might afterwards do to him, interfered to save the knights. Therefore, the king was fain to satisfy his vengeance with the death of all the common men. Then, he sent the Earl of Salisbury with one portion of his army to ravage the eastern part of his own dominions, while he carried far and slaughter into the northern part, torturing, plundering, killing, and inflicting every possible cruelty upon the people, and every morning setting a worthy example to his men by setting fire with his own monster hands to the house where he had slept last night. Nor was this all. For the Pope, coming to the aid of his precious friend, laid the kingdom under an interdict again, because the people took part with the barons. It did not much matter, for the people had grown so used to it now that they had begun to think nothing about it. It occurred to them, perhaps to Stephen Langton too, that they could keep their churches open and ring their bells without the Pope's permission as well with it. So they tried the experiment and found that it succeeded perfectly. It being now impossible to be in the country as a wilderness of cruelty or longer to hold any terms with such a forsworn outlaw for king, the barons sent to Louise, son of the French monarch, to offer him the English crown. 
Caring as little for the Pope's excommunication of him, if he accepted the offer, as it is possible his father may have cared for the Pope's forgiveness of his sins, he landed at Sandwich, King John immediately running away from Dover, where he happened to be, and went on to London. The Scottish king, with whom many of the northern English lords had taken refuge, number of the foreign soldiers, numbers of the barons, and numbers of the people went over to him every day. King John the while, continually running away in all directions. The career of Louis was checked, however, by the suspicions of the barons, founded on the dying declaration of a French lord, that when the kingdom was conquered, he was sworn to banish them as traitors and to give their estates to some of his own nobles. Rather than suffer this, some of the barons hesitated, others even went over to King John. It seemed to be the turning point of King John's fortunes, for, in his savage and murderous coast, he had now taken some towns and met with some successes. But happily for England and humanity, his death was near. Crossing a dangerous quicksand called the Wash, not very far from Weismark, the tide came up and nearly drowned his army. He and his soldiers escaped, but looking back from the shore where he was safe, he saw the roaring water sweep down in a torrent, overturn his wagons, horses and men that carried his treasure and engulf them in a raging whirlpool from which nothing could be delivered. Cursing and swearing and gnawing his fingers, he went on to Swinestead Abbey, where the monks set before him quantities of pears and peaches and new cider, some say poison too. But there is very little reason to suppose so, for which he ate and drank in an immoderate and beastly way. All night he lay ill of a burning fever and haunted with horrible fears. Next day, they put him in a horse litter and carried him to Sleaford Castle, where he passed another night of pain and horror. Next day, they carried him, with greater difficulty than on the day before, to the castle of Newark upon Trent. And there, on the 18th of October, in the 49th year of his age, and the 17th of his vile reign, was an end of this miserable brute. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.